Hi everybody, welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. Okay, let's start then with some questions. Questions from last time, topics, things you want reviewed, things you want to make sure we get a chance to talk about tonight. There are enough of us on the call now to begin, and we are recording, so fire away and rest assured that if you miss something tonight, as always, you'll have the recording the following day that you can review. So I may have like missed this from one of the other lectures, but you know, at Pacifica, we, we do study the Jungian psychoanalysis, psychodynamic. Um, and what I would like to know is how to incorporate Lacanian psychology with the other forms of psychoanalysis. Yeah, that's a tricky one. And it might be something that you'd want to go concept by concept with. So, for instance, I think one of the things that comes out of Seminar 10 that could be really useful for someone who does um, more object relations theory and practice would, is this little a and what Lacan is here doing with this object that is more a cause than an object. And the move he's making with objectivity in science versus objectality in psychoanalysis. So I think, Desiree, it's probably a concept by concept tradition. Similarly, you might look at um, a Freudian notion like the death drive, for instance, and and work out how other folks <clears throat> have responded to it and then articulate that with Lacan's notion of the death drive. But a wholesale application of one onto the other, I think is going to is going to leave you in a bit of a mess. So I'd say concept by concept, project by project is probably the best way to do this. And as is true with any sort of theoretical work, the test here is not so much whether it's nosebleed, theoretical and conceptual, but how useful is the fucking thing? Good theory is useful theory. And in the case of a clinician, it might be useful in helping you understand and explain where an analyzand is coming from. I like Lacan because he helps me understand and explain vast areas of my life. So it's for you, it's for your work, it's for the project, and I'd say it should be driven by a specific concept. And that's a much more useful way to do this, I think. And the projects that I've seen really succeed in using Lacan, they, they back away from the wholesale incorporation or application of his work to another thinkers and instead take it point by point. It's the safest, cleanest, most responsible way to do it, I think. What else? I'll uh, ask a question. Can you hear me? Yes. 
So on page 223, uh, we didn't go over it uh, last time. It's from the Buddha's eyelids uh, chapter. He talks about uh, Tathvamasi uh, from the Upanishads, which is translated usually as uh, thou art that or I am that. It's at the bottom of the first full paragraph. Um, so when I've been speaking to Lacanians, I have equated uh, L'autre, the big other, with uh, the Vedantin concept of Brahman, uh, which was translated when I was in graduate school uh, as uh, that without attributes. Um, basically, if you can say it, it's not it. Um, and, and for some reason, I've been reprimanded in the past by Lacanians. So I was going to ask you in terms of uh, what you know about uh, uh, the Upanishads of Vedanta, uh, what do you think the differences are between the concept of Brahman uh, with an A and Lutra, the big, uh, the, the big other? That is a great question, and it's not one that I can really speak to because I just know the Lacanian stuff. I don't know this tradition that he's dipping into very well. I can get a sense of what is at stake for him in this chapter, and you're right to start on page 223, I believe. He's very interested in something here in which nothing would be reflected. And it does have some origin in his earlier writings, as he suggests. He's interested in the parts of the mirror that do not reflect back. And we learned that in our readings for tonight, too. It's the smudge or the stain or the piece of food that's stuck to the mirror that that he really is intrigued by. And in this chapter, for better and for worse titled Buddha's eyelids, it's that part of the statue, the eye that doesn't seem to be there, um, even though it does give you an indication of its presence. And if you look at the statue in question, you can see exactly what he's up to here and what he's thinking. This part on 223 that is his great lead into this comes from the character at the bottom for negation and then at the top of 223, he's messing with this not having. And then in the middle, it's kind of like mirror stage reflections. So I can't speak to the latter part of your question, Ira. I think it's great. Um, I have a sense of people whom we could ask about this, but I can only speak to the big other and how he understands the big other. And then you could then say, does it line up with your experience of these other figures from the different tradition? So that's a, a long apology. It's important though that, that this is a part of Lacanian theory and technique that folks usually ignore. This guy was intrigued by Eastern thought and religion and mysticism. Remember, this is coming after the first of two trips that he took to Japan. He also, I believe, was fluent in Mandarin and has a master's degree, had a master's degree, I believe, in Chinese culture and language, I think is what it is. You'd have to check into it. I can't speak to it directly, but. So this is something that means a lot to him. The topic that keeps coming up in seminar 10 relative to this Eastern tradition is the idea of desire. Desire is one of the central topics. 
of this seminar, and it's part of what he's doing when he drags in his experience, his recent experience in Japan. But yeah, my inclination is to read 223 alongside his work um, with mirrors, particularly his work in the 40s, the mirror stage. That which thou dost recognize in the other is thyself. Is that just a name of narcissism? No, it wouldn't be. It's more basic than that. You see, what he's trying to get at here is if you scroll down a little bit on 223, he's trotting out this stuff about mirrors, which he's already been through. And then he brings up his article on psychical causality, where he does indeed bring up this notion of a mirror in which nothing is reflected. You can see it about midway through the page. Mm -hmm. But it's at the bottom of 223 that the reason why he's doing this and bringing this up starts to come clean. The paragraph begins, but if we introduce, He's trying to help us understand what this object A is. And if we introduce it as something essential in the relationship to desire, this business of dualism and non-dualism takes on a quite different relief. And then here's the key line. If what is most me lies on the outside, not because I projected it there, but because it was cut from me, the paths I shall take to retrieve it afford an altogether different variety. So the stuff at the top of the page, the passage that I read around that which thou dost recognize in the other is thyself, Lacan wants to say, okay, but it's not a simple projection. And it's not narcissism in the sense of thinking that everybody wants to be like you. Mm -hmm. It's something different. Because remember, at this point, he is connecting object A to the real. We saw this on page 160, 161. It's the part of the wholly embodied bioanimalistic being that can't get incorporated into the symbolic. So we talked about this mythical presupposed here and now order of the infant's life, where they're effectively a worm, right? They live in a state of, of raw materiality. This is the bioanimalistic side of things that we refer to as the subject of pure need. Now, when that subject of pure need is brought into the field of the big other, of language, of society, there's always a part of them that can't be processed or metabolized by the symbolic. That part of them is always an embodied part. It always points back to their physicality, to their bioanimalistic components. And it's a part of them that is then cut out and excluded. And it is the basis for the real. The real as a register in Lacanian theory and technique was not there before the symbolic. The real is an effect structure of the symbolic. It's whatever in the symbolic the symbolic can't understand, make sense of, and signify. So the real isn't even exterior to the symbolic. 
It's extimate, if you will. It's an intimacy that is It's an exterior that has been rendered intimate to the structure of the symbolic. So the real is not prior to the symbolic. In fact, the opposite is an effect of the symbolic. And it is not exterior to the symbolic. But in fact, it is the very structuring ingredient to the symbolic. It is the nothing that the symbolic has to have in order to legitimate its claim to account for everything in the world. That's the real. So what, what Lacan is here getting at is the way that object A is connected to this interior exterior, this effect structure of symbolicity. So here at this point in his career, little a isn't just part of fantasy this imaginative symbolic act of putting desire in operation that we know of as fantasy. Here in seminar 10, object A starts taking on features of the real. And by that, here Lacan is referring to the human form, the body. That's why, as we're reading in the work tonight, he's starting to shift more into body parts, more into discussion of specific drive, don't forget, all of the drives for Lacan, they emerge from a body part, an erogenous zone. And all of the erogenous zones, according to him, have the same structure. They're effectively openings in the human body that have a rim-like structure. The erogenous zones to which the drive, which is a partial satisfaction of desire, is always attached, is bodily. So the oral drive, not oral, oral, is connected to the mouth. It's an opening in the human form that has a rim-like structure. The anal drive is connected to the anus, an opening in the human body that has a rim-like structure. The scopic drive, which is also, Ira, what he's starting to gesture towards here with Buddha's eyelids, obviously is connected to the eyelid, an opening into the human body that has a rim-like structure. The invocatory drive has its origin in the ear, which is an opening into the human body with a rim-like structure. And you could go further. You could look at pores, name your body part. But in each case, the drive always emerges from an erogenous zone travels out into the world and then travels around in a circular fashion, some sort of object of desire, some cause of desire. The word for that in Lacanian algebra is object A. They all circulate around an object A and then return back to that erogenous zone. So the human form is really important here, and that's what he's getting at at the bottom of 223. If what is most me lies on the outside, that's the first claim. The truth of who you are, as we've learned from communication scholars like John Durham Peters, belongs to the other. You know me better than I know myself. It's not because I project myself onto you, but because that part of me has been cut from me. It's a body part. 
And as a result, when we shift from projection to incision and excision, objectality, the notion of the cut, we have to travel an altogether different path in understanding what that's about. And our goal last time and tonight is going to walk is going to be to walk this path a little bit. Um, may I ask whether um, so originally I was mistaken this as explaining narcissism, but now it sounds like it's actually explaining the opposite, which is why humans are altruistic in a way, because what we think we care about the other is actually just part of ourselves. So it's trying to explain yeah. empathy and altruism. I don't think he's messing with that here at all. In fact, I think what he's getting at, you can see it at the bottom of 223 and the top of 224. He again wants to get, first of all, to a notion of spatiality that is there whether you have mirrors at all because the human eye is a reflective surface. And that's what's missing from the Bodhisattva statues that he encounters in Japan. They look like they have half closed eyes, but when you look closer, they've all been rubbed away. It's an illusion. It's an illusion of an eye. And when you look closer, what you can see is an eye that doesn't look back at you. So on one hand, you have the human eye, which is a mirror surface that is there before any spatialization of the world. So he's fucking with Kant here and working with a priori notions of space and time, particularly space. The human eye, he wants to say, is already a mirror. And, he's, and so he has this quip at the top of 224, where if you, you know, sometimes you can put two mirrors across from each other and you get an infinite reflection back and forth. He's like, you don't actually need to do that. All you need to do is stand in front of a mirror and look very, very closely at the way that that mirror is reflected in your eye. And when you look in the mirror, you can see this back and forth reflective capacity. So the eye itself is a mirror. But that's not really what he wants to get at. What he wants to get at is this notion emphasized again on page 224. It was italicized on 223. It's italicized on 224. A surface in which nothing is reflected. And I think it might be nice to read Lacan to the letter here and ask what kind of a, of a surface can reflect the no thing. That thing becomes of the no. Can I ask a question? Please do, fire away. I read the Buddha's eye as something else. Um, I read the half-open uh, eyelid indicating that the um, Buddha was enlightened and thus in, I'm conflating the Hinduism, Vedanta and Buddha, but um, at one, with uh, l'autre, one with the big other. That could be true. And he does make allusions to the half-closed eye of the contemplating noetic, if you will, Buddha or Bodhisattva. But on 228, the first line of the first full paragraph, if you need still more details, you may notice that there is no opening for the eyes on this statue. 
The statue he's looking at does not have eyes open, closed, or halfway closed at all. So he's not looking at a statue that captures the sense of the enlightened subject in this state of reposed, almost um, meditative thought or contemplation in the Western tradition. That's not what he's talking about. He says it simply has, at the level of the eyes, a kind of pronounced ridge, which means that with the reflection off the wood, one always seems to be able to make out an eye. But there's nothing there in the wood. I examined the wood at length, and I made inquiries, at which point he cites Professor Kondo. And he moves on down in this paragraph at the end to talk about the slit of the eye on the statue has disappeared due to the more or less daily kneading it endures from the hands of the nuns of the convent, where it is the most precious treasure. When they think to dry the tears of this figure of archetypal divine recourse. And then at the bottom, he's on to the drives. So I find this a very weird chapter. I think it's super interesting. I think the stake is a figure of Buddhist contemplation, the eyes of which are gone, but that nevertheless are indicated. It's an eye that, unlike the one staring at it, yields no reflection. It is a non-reflective eye that nevertheless seems to be looking back at you. And don't forget, the object of the scopic drive is technically speaking the gaze. And that is not the position from which you look. It is the position from which you are seen. The gaze, according to Lacan, are all of the positions in the room in which you find yourself from which someone or something can see you. He recalls in one of his seminars being on a fishing boat when he was trying to get some cash together. And one of the rather drunken fishermen says, do you see that can over there in the water? And Lacan says, no, I don't. And the fisherman says, well, it sees you. And then they all laugh. I still don't get if that's a joke or what the deal is. But Lacan says, this is seminar 11, by the way. This is the one after this one. He says, yeah, this is exactly what the gaze is. It's the position from which you can be seen. Which is why in great feminist and cinematographic terms, you can get this internalization of the Lacanian notion of the gaze in terms of male erotic gaze that women have internalized in the Western tradition. So that, such that when a woman stands in front of the mirror, she's not looking at herself from her own point of view, but from the viewpoint of a more or less turned on male. So we've heard about this. Laura Mulvey, the feminist after Lacan, made a great deal um, of, of the gaze. It's the position from which you're seen, and it can be assigned to the painting on the wall in front of you. It's the little glowing red or green light on your laptop indicating that your camera is now on. It is your laptop itself. It has the gaze. Within that broad discussion of the gaze, Lacan wants to talk very particularly about the type of gaze that you get 
from a smudge on the mirror that does not reflect something back to you. It does occupy the gaze, but it's staring back at you in a way that is rather disturbing. Disturbing technically because it disturbs the otherwise whole image of you, the specular image. And we can draw that little i next to little a in parens. That's the Lacanian algebra for the specular image. If you strip away the little i and pull the parens out, you know what letter's left. It's little a. What stares back at you from the stain or the smudge or the spittle or the particle of food attached to your mirror is objea. Um, may I, sorry, just um, in my understanding, this, what you're describing, the gaze from which you're seeing, is more like a Foucauldian panoptic gaze that would be similar to the cinematic gaze, you know, male gaze on a female. But I remember reading Lacan, and um, he sounds like at some point, I forgot which book it was, that he was saying that the gaze is a witch that does not see you, but not that witch that sees you. Uh, and I was just doing a quick Googling of Lacan. Um, it was it was a story written 1964. I forgot which book it is, but basically it's the exact story you were mentioning. The quote says, the young fisherman says to Lacan, do you see that box? Do you see it? Well, it doesn't see you. So does the gaze see you or it doesn't see you for Lacan? The stake here is one that occupies a position from which you can be seen. The question is not whether that piece of food that popped out of your mouth while you were flossing and is stuck to the mirror has eyes and is staring back at you. The question is how it disturbs and troubles the otherwise seamless relationship between the spectator and the speculum, between the person in front of the mirror and the mirror itself. It troubles that otherwise um, stadium of reflections. It calls it into question. It's something that sticks out in a way that troubles the situation. That's why I use the word disturb. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the gaze doesn't see you. Can I use it to describe Chinese government who repressed <laughs> the people in lockdown and ignores yeah. their call? Yeah, you can use it to describe. You can use a lot of things to describe the Chinese government. I don't know if, if this fits. <laughs> yeah, but the gaze is typically, and and notice how I'm saying this, a position from which you can be seen. So it doesn't it doesn't mean that the plant across the room from you has eyes and is staring back at you. It means that that is one position from which somebody, if they were to remove that plant, could sit in a chair and stare back at you. And that's enough to do the kind of work. I don't know if this is where you're going by bringing up Foucault's panopticon, but it is certainly suggestive there, right? What people figured out in the 19th century was that a mirror here or there keeps subjects way more in line than an actual guard with a club because it's the work of being watched that allows for self-discipline. So this is how you get the prison tower, according to Foucault, right? You don't even have to have a guard in that thing. You just put a tower up, put some mirrors around it, 
And the assumption made by the prisoners is that they are being watched. And they err on the side of behaving as a result. That's the notion of the panopticon. You have elementary schools that are still designed this way as well. Anybody who has attended lectures at San Francisco State, you'll know that many of the classrooms have a mirrored wall in the back. And that's so social scientists can be back there studying subjects, doing whatever it is that they do. Now, some rooms in San Francisco State also have curtains that you pull in front of those mirrors because students show up and they're like, what the fuck is there a mirror doing here? Who's back there? What are they, why are they watching me? <laughs> I don't know if I'm telling you to go ahead and steal from Walmart because there is no camera behind those black bubbles attached to the ceiling. But the fact that the bubbles are there is usually enough to deter people. And I know this all the time living in San Francisco because I know people who simply bought a non-working outdoor camera and attached it to their garage so that it looks like there's a working camera and it comes with a sign that says this property is under 24-hour surveillance. That camera, if you just look at it, you can look at the camera, there's a wire hanging from it. It's not plugged into anything. So that's partly how the gaze can work. Whether the camera is flipped on or not, it is suggestive of being watched. And that's enough. Really, though, for Lakanda, remember, it's this body part. I keep coming back to the image of a piece of food that is popped out of your teeth while you floss and gets stuck to the mirror. It now renders that section of the mirror unreflective, and it also marks a part of you, a body part. Remember, object A is a real body part from the mythical subject that can't be metabolized by the symbolic. And it's one that calls into question the otherwise pristine existence that you have in your super clean bathroom as you clean your super clean teeth under super crystal 3000 luminescent lights that make you look this, that, and the other. You know, you know what I'm saying? It disrupts the illusion of perfection and coherence and really beauty, which is why Lacan introduces this concept with the notion of the beauty mark, which he then immediately transforms into the stain. That's part of what he's getting at here. He's really working hard here, really as hard as I've seen him work. He's working extremely hard here to try and bring us to this very odd, enigmatic object that is not an object. So it has a gaze, but that doesn't mean that it's watching you. He's working really hard to try and gather this stuff up. Object A is not exactly an object out in the world. It's an opening. Remember what I said last time. The object of the desirous other's pursuit is the opening in which I might pursue my own desire. That's why Lacan says anxiety is not without an object. It doesn't mean it has one in the normal sense. The object of anxiety is an opening. And little a is just his choice of 
algebraic symbols to signal this opening, this cut or rupture in an otherwise pretty clear fabric. That's why the stain on the mirror comes up. That's why the eyes that are there and indicative of vision but aren't there are relevant here as well. They're eyes that not only don't look back at you, but they're eyes that also don't reflect other than the surface of polished wood. Dead eyes. Dead eyes can still reflect the world around them. Ask Neil Young. Dead eyes can reflect the world around them, even if they can't look back at you. That's why it's so freaky when you walk by a dead creature and you look down and it looks like they're staring at you. Or if you, this is a classic trope in films as well. Or where in comedy, the version of this is where you, the subject starts to speak to somebody in the film and their eyes are open and all of a sudden they let out a snore. And it turns out they're asleep, they sleep with their eyes open. But the subject doesn't realize that and is carrying on a conversation with them. Because the eye is open, it serves the purpose of that mirror, but it doesn't mean that eye is looking. On the contrary, that eye is unconscious. Have you seen that movie, The Tenant, Ro Roman Polanski? Whenever somebody asks me if I've seen a movie, I just always say, I don't think so. Even if I know I have, I figure, I think I have found it's just a safer way to proceed. So I don't think so. It's very creepy. And it's something to do with people around him turning into the, the other that doesn't see him. Anyway, we don't need to, it's, it's a horror movie. Okay, we, we have horror movies lined up and this is one of them, thank you. Um, we have work to do, but I wanna make sure we get some more questions answered. I have a question, Sam. Go ahead. So is the purpose of the analyst to be placed or to be seen as object A by the analysis? So does that cause transference? What it does is it awakens desire. And so if you look in seminar 17 in the four discourses and you look at the discourse of the analyst, you can see that the position of the subject, the position of the speaker, the analyst's position mm -hmm. is designated with little a. And I believe that what Lacan is suggesting there is that a good analyst is a jump starter for the analyzant's desire. And the first move is at some level to make the analyzant curious about the analyst. Now I'm using the word curious and not anxious, but it could be as simple. And for those of you that, that work with patients, I'm sure you've seen this where the analyzant is sitting across from you and looking at you as if to say, what do you want from me? Oh, I know what you're thinking or Here's what's up with me. Okay, now give me an answer. You're supposed to know everything, but in a way that is reserved and held back in a way that piques the interest of the analyzant. Now, I think that part of the artistry of what would happen in the room, and I'm no practicing Lacanian, so we'd have to ask one, is the ability to show up in the place of object A, 
awaken the curiosity of the patient about you as an analyst, and then over time, redirect that curiosity back at themselves. So that now the analyzand becomes curious about themselves. Why am I here? What am I up to? What's going on with me? And I think that's part of the artistry of being a Lacanian analyst is to awaken the subject's desire and then redirect that desire back at them. At least that's what I've heard. And I think if you read some of Bruce Fink's work, the clinical introduction to Lacan, you can see him spelling out some of this as well. This kind of this kind of delicate dance of redirecting desire. Now, what's important also is not just the position of the analyst, but the position that the analyst's discourse imposes on the analyzand. So the analyzand sometimes will show up and want to play master. I know what's wrong with me. I'm here because I'm anxious and I need you to help me figure out X, Y, and Z. They may even show up with a list of things that they want you to address. They want to show up and play master. A good Lacanian analyst, though, speaks to them not like their masters, but like their hysterics. And I don't want to get too bogged down in the clinical substructure of neurosis known as hysteria. Because what Lacan is here suggesting is that the analyst, by playing object A, is going to speak in a way that addresses the analyzand like they're a split subject. He's not going to speak to them as though they are a whole, coherent, masterful being. In other words, he's not going to address their ego. Instead, he's going to address the parts of them that feel insecure, uncertain, a little bit, I don't know, I can't really explain it. So Bruce Fink has an example of a patient who shows up and says, I was watching this movie the other night. It was called The Tenant. And there's this character in there who's acting, I don't know, they just, anyway, they're in a relationship and, and this character is treating their partner badly. And I really got pissed off because like, that's not the kind of relationship I wanna be in. And Bruce says that he's tempted in this moment. He says the temptation is to immediately jump on this expression of desire and ask the patient, well, what kind of relationship do you desire for yourself? Let's talk about what you might actually want for yourself. Eh, incorrect. That was a trap. The better move is instead to talk about the feeling of repulsion and disgust that the person felt towards the person in the film that they don't want as their significant other. What was it about them that got you so upset? Because that is not speaking to the desire of the ego, but to the jouissance of the unconscious. What you are doing in that moment is you're saying, aha, I just found something in your life that gets you hot, that riles you up, that troubles you. Isn't that interesting? Look at how alive you just were in that moment. And now we're on the path of Lacanian psychoanalysis, not pursuing the parts of the subject that seem coherent in the sense of that's not the kind of relationship I want. 
honey, the kind of relationship that I want looks like blah, blah, blah. And you're going to have to forgive me because I'm in the middle of watching the assassination of Gianni Versace and working through this character, this sociopathic character of Andrew Kananen. Oh my gosh. And all the things that he wants in this elaborate facade that is his sense of self that everyone seems ready to see through. Because behind that facade is a split subject. And so the question here is not just what position does the analyst occupy, but to what position do they speak? They speak at the part of the subject that is not on display, that is not polished. In fact, they speak at the part of the subject that all of the display and polish are designed to conceal. That part of them that feels split, insecure, out of control. The same way they felt a little out of control in their rage toward this person on the phone. That position is that of a split subject, which is why if you look at the discourse of the analyst in seminar 17, it's little a speaking at barred S. You awaken their desire and speak to them in a way that highlights their cracks, not in a mean way, but in a way that calls that out. Now, when I say speak to the crack, I want you to notice what I'm pointing to at the, as the object. The object is not the split subject. It's that which splits them. It is the split itself. And so tonight is going to be a night of elaborate math equations. Here's the first one. You want to understand the split subject, you have to understand this. One plus one equals three. And you know why it equals three, right? Because object A is the minimum distance irreducible between two points that allow those points to remain distinct. In the split subject, you don't just have a bioanimalistic self and a sociolinguistic self that are in tension with each other. No, what you have are all of these gaps between the two parts of your subjectivity. Those openings represented by the bar that goes through the letter S are a third element. But the reason why we forget that one plus one equals three is because that third element is not an element like the rest. It's not a thing, it's not a part. It's an opening. It's a fissure, it's a rupture, it's an irreducible distance, however slight. You see, the question of sexuality is oftentimes, how close can I put these two bodies together? How close can I imbricate these bodies? Yours inside of mine and mine inside of yours. Lacan's point is not that you become one in those moments, but that your relationship becomes one of thirdness instead. Because what's on display at that point are all of your cracks, of course, but primarily the split between you and the other person. Two bodies pressed together are always still two bodies, no matter how close or one they feel. That's going to be Lacan's point. So the first math equation for us tonight is one plus one equals three. And that third element that you add to it is, you can call it the plus sign, 
you can call it the equation itself. But for us, I think it's good to talk about it as the minimum distance required to have one and another together. This is them kissing. I couldn't resist. Can you we have relate one more question before we dive into material? Go ahead, go ahead, Ara. Can you relate this to uh, analysis, please? My understanding was that uh, the analyst shows up as the big other, Lotzla, and what you were referring to earlier, uh, the sujet supposé savoir, that the um, <clears throat> analysis comes in uh, believing that the analyst knows more about um, him or her than she does. And and the end of analysis, a, su a successful analysis, in my understanding, is when the analysis realizes that the analyst doesn't know more. That's a very good way to put it. I've heard it put many different ways of how analysis ends. The position you're describing is indeed the one I was alluding to. In English, it's translated usually as the subject supposed to know. But hold on, let me ask you. This is this is this is something that came to my mind one second ago. This is really interesting to me. Sujet supposé savoir. Like, why wouldn't it be l'objet supposé savoir? Why why does the analysand see the analyst as a subject rather than an object? Ooh, good question. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you could you could run it a couple different ways and come out with a pretty clean answer. Um, maybe it's because deep down the the inverse of that statement, which is to say its truest component, is is uh, that the analyzand views themselves as an object. That's very interesting. And they know they know they're the piece of shit which is why they have to treat you, dear clinician, as the slave. Get to work. Give me your knowledge. I'm paying for this. You might even have had a patient show up and be like, yeah, you know what? I'm the boss. You're fired. I'm paying for this. So tell me what's up. Oh, you're just going to sit there and just take notes and not say anything? Come on, man. Get to work. I don't I mean, I don't know how this works, but I've heard horror stories. It just sounds awful. I can't even believe that then you would end a session and five minutes later have some other asshole come into your office and try to do the same thing for like eight hours. I can't even imagine that you all are saints. You are miracle workers to be able to like process all that. But yeah, the subject supposed to know it's a great question of why that would be a subject and not an object. But usually when you have addressees being designated and called out, you can usually invert the positionality that is being assigned to them and read it back into the addressor to the person speaking. So if I call you um, uh, an asshole and we're in therapy, it's probably because I feel like I'm the asshole or maybe you know the inverse of whatever an asshole is. So. It might be that I'm trying to perform as as being a, a really nice person, and so you have to be the asshole. But you get into this dialectic that's pretty useful to, I believe. Um, but part of that dialectic is the analyzand showing up and assuming that you're the one who's supposed to have all the answers. You are the subject, 
even though you probably should be an object because you're certainly being treated as one. You're the commodity supposed to know. And, and, and that's a troubling place to be because if you will look at the graph um, where Lacan is uh, working out the, the discourse of the analyst, and let me go ahead and, and share the screen so you all can see this. The discourse of the analyst, Here's your little a, that's the position of the speaker. Here's the subject that they are addressing. Then there's this position of truth. If you know seminar 17, in the position of truth, in the discourse of the analyst in seminar 17, you have this figure, which is knowledge. This is usually the position of something that is hidden. Usually from this person, this person can't quite see what's underneath them. This is their truth. This is where they speak from. This is who they speak to. This is what they ask the person to produce. But this is the truth of the speaker's position. And I bring this up here not to take us too far afield, but to just remind those of you that have studied 17 that in the position of truth, the hidden position for the analyst is knowledge. So the sub, when the analyzand shows up and treats the therapist as the subject's supposed to know, they are tempting them to trot out all their knowledge, tempting them, in other words, to change positions. And instead of speaking in response from position object A, if the analyst succumbs to this, they will then speak from the position of knowledge. And this puts them in a totally different discourse. In fact, it's gathered by just a simple quarter turn where each of the four positions here simply moves down one. If you look at this, you can see. So S2 pops up, little A shifts over, split subject drops down. Whoops, hold on a second. And this would be S1. Just one minute and then, and then I'll explain it here. Now what's happening in this moment is the analyst, the analyst has given in to playing a different role now, which is not that of the analyst, but instead that of the professor. Or as Lacan refers to it, the university. This is the university discourse. So when that happens, Ira, if the analyst responds in a way that says, well, actually, it doesn't sound like you have anxiety at all, dear sir. In fact, I've got some better ideas of what it is that might be bothering you. In that case, they're now no longer speaking from the position of object A and thus no longer able to incite the desire or to mobilize the desire of the analyst. And. But now they're speaking from the position of a professor talking to a student, trying to pique their curiosity and allow them to feel inadequate, all the while neglecting the fact that they are in fact doing the work of the master. This is the truth of the university, according to Lacan, is that professors don't realize when they're dropping all kinds of knowledge and scandalizing students, that they're just the mouthpiece for power. And this is the great insight that Marx had long before Lacan, 
the ruling ideas in any given era are always the ideas of the ruling class in that era. And the professor all too often has been the mouthpiece for whatever is the ruling ideas. So anyway, you don't wanna be that as an analyst, I guess is the moral of this story. Okay, um, one last question. When we made the symbol of the, the fingers and uh, what would the, um, the analyst's goal be in terms of, um, uh, I don't know, the reconciling or um, the space between the, um, the animal desires and the, um, uh, the, 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 the regulations against those primal desires? I don't think that there's a search for reconciliation here. I haven't ever seen that in writings uh, from Lacan. Okay, then let me just go back and then, what, then in terms of what you said in the 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 um, the cracks between the the two, um, what would the analyst goal be? Maybe just to increase some awareness of that, and I would say ultimately to allow the analyzand to be cool with it. If you ask me after these years of studying Lacan and thinking about what this is about as a clinical practice, I'm no clinician, but my understanding of the end of analysis for Lacan looks a lot like somebody who has completed some significant coursework on self-compassion. They recognize that they are imperfect and they're cool with that. Let me, it's, in terms of what happens as a result of that is that they now have a capacity to love, not just love themselves, but to love others. So that, in my view, is the horizon, whether you're in analysis or not, of reading Lacan is coming to terms, right? It's the talking cure, coming to terms with the parts of you that feel inadequate, incomplete, accepting those parts, even loving them, even picking the worst part of your life and thanking the perpetrator. That's how extreme some of these some of these thoughts go. Because if that horrible shit hadn't happened to you all those years ago, you wouldn't be the person you are today. And the person you are today is pretty damn solid. It's kind of a good person. I kind of like that person and you should too. And as a result, don't have regrets. Don't wish things would be different. All of your flaws, all this stuff, you know, it would be about accepting those. And it would be about having a sense of compassion towards oneself when you fuck up. You're only human. Nobody's perfect. People make mistakes. And as a result, being able to extend that acceptance of your own lack to another person, which is to say to allow them to fuck up, to allow them to have a horrible past. You ever been in a relationship where someone is kind of like holding you hostage to previous people you've had sex with? Like before you met them, they're like looking down their nose at you because you happened to fuck somebody else before you met them. Like, huh, what are we talking about? That's not the same as me cheating on you, fool. That's not what that is. I, that, I, because I had sex with somebody 10 years ago, doesn't mean that I had an affair. <laughs> are you tripping? That doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. It would be about this kind of radical acceptance that Lacan defines as love, giving what you don't have. And the reason why people add to someone who probably doesn't want it is because what you're doing in that moment 
is you're embracing the parts of a person that their ego can't come to terms with, that they won't accept, that they keep shoving aside. This is what I would think would be a horizon, Ira, for working through the Lacanian tradition. Now, I can't speak to this again for in a clinical context, but I think it does hold over, it does carry over into everyday life. Reading Lacan would have this as an effect if done well. What I thought you were going to go to uh, was awareness of the split, of being the split subject. Yeah, that's fine. That's great too. But it would be an awareness that doesn't say, I'm one plus one and thus twofold. It would be a one plus one that yields an endless count and recount, a tale, if you will. Don't forget the origin of the word tell and count or tally. They come from the same word. To tell a tale is oftentimes to recount one. There's a sense in which the coming to terms, the narration of one's history, where the past is no longer something that determines your life, but something that you now have owned and claimed as your past known as history. This kind of retelling is also a recounting. And the math is fuzzy here. So this self-awareness, Ira, would be one plus one equals three. That's me. I'm one plus one equals three, at the very least. And the count would continue from there. Now, I've got things I came here to say. I came here to say some things to you all. And I realize at this point, our fifth session together, that we could just keep on going in this direction. And hell, maybe that would be good enough. But damn if I wouldn't feel remiss. I came here to put you all through some paces and to draw some beautiful pictures on a, on a blackboard. The whiteboard is what I do in person. The blackboard is what I do virtually. But first, I want to review some stuff. I want to walk us through the three basic steps that we've got here. If you want like a Lacanian ontology, this is it. And I'm going to present these things in a way that are sequential. But bear in mind that each step is retroactively constituted by the one that follows. So it's not that one begets two, it's that as soon as you have the number two, you start imagining what one must have been. Remember that as we get going. So first things first, where we started here was with this subject of pure need, not just tonight, but with all of our sessions so far. This is a mythical, a priori, presupposed being in what Lacan calls the here and now of the all in the process of becoming. Don't forget, that's also what's popping in the chapter on Buddha's eyelids. It's not just about ones and zeros. It's about the all and nothing. The all in question here is this bio-animalistic state that the subject of pure need occupies. The representation that we have of that state is just a simple delta, a triangle. I'm gonna share my screen again so we can start throwing up some of these images. The subject of pure need is represented 
by a simple triangle. You also see it in Lacan represented in these tables as an S. This is the subject of pure need. What comes next is the imaginary. Here we talk about it in a different triangle, the pre-edipal triangle that we were working with that looks something like this, where you have the child here, you have the maternal function up here, and then you have this object in the corner, the imaginary phallus. So the next object for us is this imaginary phallus. This is a pre-edipal triangle that is ruled by the child's relationship to mother's desire. The child has a desire for the mother, realizes mom has other interests, and then tries to identify with those things in order to get the maternal function directed at it, in order to secure, in other words, and satisfy the child's desire for the mother. This next step is imaginary. It's not mythical, it's imaginary. And it's represented for us by the imaginary object here, Greek phi. Next, from imaginary triangles to symbolic squares, this is the point at which the paternal function shows up and cuts a line through here, introducing a fourth element, making this a square. The symbol here is of the imaginary phallus removed. So here is our mythical, here is our imaginary, and here is our symbolic. This is a properly edipal experience, not the pre-edipal triangle of the imaginary, but the edipal square of the symbolic. What happens in this moment, as you know, is that the name or the no of the father cuts in, denies everyone access to this object, saying that the mother doesn't have it and the kid can't be it for her. In other words, subtracting this element from the equation. And in its place, some space emerges, an opening between the devouring desire of the mother and the child, who now has some breathing room in which to cultivate a desire of their own. This process, where the no of the father introduces some breathing room or a cut, is known as castration. You'll oftentimes hear it referred to as alienation as well. It is represented by parens minus phi for our purposes. The next term is the signifier for lack in Lacanian algebra. It's the lack that becomes the cause of the child's desire. You see, once the maternal function's desire has been cut and set aside, introducing some breathing room for the child, that's a gap or an opening, some breathing room in which the child the symbol we have for that is A. A is the symbol for lack that we have that comes to mark this void space. It is a sign of lack, and little a is how we figure or symbolize this lack. It's the lack that is the cause or you might even think of it as the opportunity, or as I've referred to it tonight, the opening 
for the child's desire. So, so far our trajectory looks like this. There's a subject of pure need, then you have this imaginary triangle, then the imaginary triangle has to account for a symbolic cut or a rupture. Then we get this fourth term that allows us to designate this open space. What I want to do now is call out this element. Lacan refers to this on several occasions in our readings for tonight. Maybe you caught this too. As the zero point. Pages 242, 253, 254, it's all over this. And there's zero talk elsewhere too. Pages 25, 104, 329, we'll get there eventually. There's a lot about zeros happening in this seminar. To identify little a as the zero point is to do something very interesting. Something that in our case is going to require a new color and with it, another really complicated math equation. One minus one equals, and this time there's no trick to it, zero. Now let's replace these elements with the terms that we have. Here it is. This is what Lacan is up to when he refers to little a as a zero point. What is the number zero but a signifier for nothing? A signifier for that, that marks a place where nothing is. It is a figure of lack. It is the algebraic term like the number zero that indicates a place in the symbolic where nothing shows up. And I like that. Nothing shows up there. In every sense of the phrase, this little a designates the point in the symbolic where nothing shows up. I guess I'll go ahead and save this just in case, but I'm ready to move on to the next step in this analysis. First, questions real quick before we jump on to the next phase. All right, then let's recall where we've been. Now, I'm not gonna slow down. I'm gonna keep moving fast here, knowing that all of this is recorded and you can always go back and see what's being said. What I've given you here and to my knowledge, it's been given nowhere else, is a formula for anxiety. The desire of a lacking other greater than the cause of the desire of the split subject. Now, what I want to focus on here is this little a again. Lacan refers to this moment sometimes only once that I can find in here as a coincidence without merger of two points 
first the anxiety point. And second, the point of desire. Hey, Sam, I, uh, I can't see the what you're writing. Put on some weird. You can see what I'm writing. I can't see it. Hands up if you can see what I'm writing. Okay, so nobody can see what I'm writing here. All right, hold up. Hold somebody up. Somebody put on some kind of weird. No, it's just background. someone put on together mode. So what y'all have to do is go to view in the top right hand corner and change it back to grid, and then you can see Sam's screen. Yeah, so upper right hand corner, go to view. Did that work? Um, Hold on, let me stop sharing and then I'll come back to it real quick and see if that helps. Okay, okay so now does everyone just see us again? All right, so now let's go to share screen again. How's it looking, y'all? If I go to grid view, can you all yeah, see? Are we good? Yes. All right, great. Thank you. So what we're working on here is this little A. And what Lacan is suggesting here is that it's the anxiety point, but it also at some there. level serves as a point of desire. Yeah, what is it? Is there another technical issue? What's up, y'all? I thought I heard a chirp or something. All right, thumbs up if you can see the screen in black again, just to make sure we're all good. Thumbs up, please. We Nobody can see your Skype window. What does that mean? You can see my skype window yeah if you go back to the black screen we can see the black screen now uh, we can see it so you can see whatever it is that i am hovering over yeah all right got it thank you oliver so damn helpful damn okay so what we have here then is this formula for anxiety and we have a finer tuned analysis emerging of this little a and what i want to know is if it's true, as Lacan claims on page 242, that this little a as the zero point can be a coincidence without merger of these two elements, the origin of desire and the object of anxiety, how are we to understand this? How can little a be both of these things at once? One way that we can start to get some answers to this question, and here y'all, I'm gonna move on to another drawing and one that you've seen before, is to get us back to this table that Lacan is messing with throughout the middle portion of this book. And I drew it for you last time 
It looked something like this. Recognize this one? And he puts jouissance over here, corresponding to the upper level. He puts anxiety here, and then desire below. And what I was telling you last time is the way to understand the progression of this table, because it does have some movement built into it, is to notice the circle that occurs here. You start at this point with the subject of pure need, passes over and through the big other, and as a product of this, you get these two elements, which result in desire and fantasy. But notice how Lacan's got this set up. Anxiety occupies this median point between the two. This is what we've been trying to understand. He leaves us with this, and then somewhere in our readings, he shifts to talking about moms and babies. He shifts to talking about uterine experience. And here what I want to do is map this onto these three levels with a series of circles that I think might help us understand what he's up to. Really more like oddly shaped donuts. This is the experience Lacan is referring to when he talks about the uterine experience in Seminar 10. Here is the maternal organism, the mama-to-be. Here is the baby, the individual-to-be. And then here, this element in between is the mammalian component represented for Lacan here by the placenta. The baby is connected to the placenta, is connected to the uterine wall of the mom. Now, this is corresponding with the upper level. It is a mythical level. Now, we all know that this is anatomically true. What we want to get at is what happens next. The next thing that happens in this process is an opening for desire, which Lacan would have us draw as such. He says there's a first cut. that results in a split subject. The mama is still here, and so also is her attachment to the mama, the placenta in this case. What is emerging in this moment is what Lacan calls the desire point. The anatomical example he's working with here is a rather normal birth where the baby pops out and then a little while later, you know what happens next, the placenta is delivered. It's a second delivery. But what comes first 
after you have this holistic experience, so to speak, is a severance of the baby from the maternal organism. Interestingly, Lacan refers to this process as separation, not separation, separation. On page 237, it's a partition on the inside, he says, in a way that is internal to the child's existence. This is the emergence of a partial object. In the oral drive, this is going to become the breast. This is the part of the mom that belongs to her that the child longs for. This is the partial object. It's the partial object that will awaken desire. It's the partial object, depending on your drive, around which you will later circulate in life. So it's interesting to think of A as the opening here, but as a partial object, it also can work here. But this space in between is the desire point. Now that we've got some of these terms, I want to talk about what happens in anxiety using the exact same structures that we were just messing with. When anxiety occurs, there is a second cut, according to Lacan. in which the maternal organism is no longer whole or coherent, but shown to be lacking just as much. Here we see the emergence of anxiety point. And now you've got a proper configuration where you have little a here in the middle, marking the space, and on one side of it, you've got the anxiety point. On the other side of it, you've got the desire point. This is that coincidence without merger that Lacan is talking about. Now, if you go back down to this desire element, the child is born, the placenta drops out, the child's unaware of this, whatever, but the child does become aware of the maternal breast. Just keeping it very traditional. That becomes an object of desire, a desire for nourishment, a desire for food, not just because it keeps you alive, right, as a subject of pure need, but also because it just feels good. And this is a trick that a lot of nursing moms deal with. When is the baby just there chewing on the breast and when are they actually feeding? Sometimes the kid falls asleep. Other times the mother will say things like, you know what, this, this kid's not hungry. They just like nursing. They just like being there on mother's breast. That is a desire to be close to mom, to close this gap. When anxiety occurs, it's something different. Mother is no longer seen as a feeder as a provider of nourishment who is full of milk, but instead, somebody who lacks, in this case, milk. This is anxiety, fundamentally, Lacan says, 
about the breast drying up. Anxiety at the oral phase is about a breast, quotation marks around breast, drying up, the glass going empty, or better yet, the bar running out of beer, because that would be the big other who is now shown as lacking. There are lots of examples of this. What I want to suggest, though, is that we see a very interesting move that is occurring here. From the imaginary to castration, to desire, to fantasy, at the level of desire here, it's a coherent move, which we might be able to represent like this. The level of anxiety, we see something totally different. We see this little a being forced to account for itself in a different way. This mark, as we know from our work with the symbolic square, is the mark of castration. It's not the mark of lack, <clears throat> but of castration, the predecessor to lack. In anxiety, a big other who themselves is lacking shows up and doesn't just demand and close out the opening in which you might pursue your desire. They show up and demand that you show up as castrated. Show me, prove it. This is precisely what Lacan is working at on page 46 and why we spent some time working on this part. I think it's important to hold in mind this shift from the subtracted phallus to little a in desire, which is that trajectory that we were working on that looked like this, don't forget. I'm not stepping too far away from this here, y'all. This is the entire ontology. Subject of pure need, imaginary triangle, symbolic square, the opening of lack that in turn becomes the cause for the desire of a split subject. An extension, if you want to go further, the mobilization of desire at the level of fantasy, a split subject in relation to their A. That'd be the next step here. What's happening in the field of anxiety is a reversal where the subject, the desiring subject, is not just being marched back to their lack, but being marched back one step further to their castration. This is why Lacan, again, and those famous pages, some of the best pages, I think, so far in this seminar, 45 and 46, 46, what the neurotic shrinks back from is not castration, but from turning his castration into what the other lacks. He shrinks back from turning his castration into something positive, namely the guarantee of the function of the other. This is important 
because castration is experienced by the subject as a negative. It is a taking away, a subtractive, prohibitive no that we've spoken so much about. When anxiety strikes, that negation that produces the opening for the subject to pursue their desire is positivized. It becomes the object of the other's desire and says, give it to me. I want that. Show me that you've undergone it. Show me that you're castrated. And you can scroll down on 46 and see this playing out. This can only ensure for himself by a means of a signifier and the signifier is necessarily missing. The subject is summoned in anxiety to this missing place to tender the exact change in the shape of a sign, the sign of his own castration. The sign of the subject's castration is this. When anxiety happens, hear me now, the opening in which the subject used to cultivate their desire is being marched back to the point of castration that first cut that opened up that place for the subject to move into. That is how I read what Lacan is saying here about the anxiety point and the point of desire coinciding at times, but not in ways that allow them to merge. Which raises a really key question for us. What's left after anxiety? What can you do after anxiety? Well, note our table here. If this arrow is an accurate description, what comes after desire is anxiety, and what comes after anxiety is jouissance. Not the mythical J0 of the subject of pure need which is why we put jouissance in quotation marks here. Lacan is very clear that if we can even use the word jouissance to describe this uteroific experience, which we really can't, technically that's an error. We can't actually use the word jouissance to describe this mythical presupposed state of oneness. We can just call it J0 because that shit don't exist. Now, bear in mind what you already know about zero too, as I say that. Point three here, is like J1. It's a different kind of jouissance. What I want to suggest here before we take a little break is that what's left to do after anxiety is to reclaim jouissance. And I use the word reclaim here very hesitantly because it's not like jouissance was once had and lost and now we're regaining it. Anxiety, though, tills the soil for jouissance. On the other side of anxiety, what I want to suggest is not more desire, but instead enjoyment. Desire is the prey of anxiety. Anxiety preys on the desire of the subject. What, however, the death of anxiety turns up the soil that it tills for the subject 
is that of enjoyment. The other side of anxiety is a kind of jouissance that is accessed by the partial satisfaction of desire in the drive. This is the uppermost return arrow of the graph of desire, which passes from the drive You can see it on page four yourself, which occurs in a field of castration all the way back over to jouissance. This trajectory from desire to anxiety to jouissance is also, I believe, on display at the uppermost arc in the graph of desire. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.